Oh God, you know how fragile is our human nature, wounded as it is by sin. Help your people to enter upon the Lenten journey, strengthened by the power of your word, so that we may be victorious over the seductions of the evil one and reach the Paschal Feast in the joy of the Holy Spirit. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So when I become a pastor someday, (laughs) two things I'd like, two two things I pray. One, that they leave the sound system on before Bible study, and two, that they can replace the flapper in 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 the toilet here in this bathroom. No longer. I know. Where's Grandpa? He would have it fixed for it. That's right. There's no flapper problems there. Right now, though, every time I go in, well, there's no longer a lid on the back of the toilet because the flapper keeps getting stuck. So don't use it because it's just an open lid. That's right. I said to the boys, I said, how many of you want to be pastors? I opened up the door and said, look here. This is what your life is. (laughs) That's all I do is put the flapper down. <laughs> During the next sermon, since I've heard it twice, I'm going to try to fix it. That's right. Oh man, I could say. Let's pass this. That's right. Here, this is for Ghana and Westfield House. Okay, and dinner tonight at Morton's. Um, for us, you can all come. Yeah. Oh, here's another thing. Third thing, <laughs> you know, uh, what are we, 17 and 7 now? Hey, couldn't be better. Couldn't be better. We, pl- we were playing out in Elgin. Uh, we played our big rivals from Emmanuel Dundee. We don't know if they're Christian anymore. I'm kidding, that was a joke. <laughs> Boy, it's getting warm in here, or is it just me? Down by six with two and a half minutes to go. I- I'll tell you this, you should all come, this will be, be a test, you should all come, observe the game, and then afterwards, tell us who you think the head coach is. Because <laughs> if you don't know, I am technically the head coach, but you would not believe who is more vocal than me. That guy right over there. <laughs> That's right. He yells at him, and I say, it's all going to be okay, guys. It's all going to be okay. Anyways, we play the chip. I'm, I've, got, I've got a Bible study, man. What about the, what about the official? He didn't respect me. He said, hi, I'm Scott. And the guy says, hi, I'm Scott, too. And I thought, well, that's funny. And then the game gets ready to start. I said, hi, I'm Josh. And he said, hi, I'm Scott. And so then in the middle of the game, Sam gets called for an offensive foul, Sam Hoffman. And I'm, I'm, I'm the only guy that walks the sideline. You'd think, if you're an official, that might mean that you're the head coach. So I said, what was the call? And he just stares at me and doesn't tell me what the call was. So at the end of the quarter, I go out on the court and I said, what was the call? And he said, you're not the head coach. <laughs> I said, really? He said, Scott is the head coach. (laughs) I said, I can guarantee he's not the head coach. (laughs) See, now it's a matter of pride. And that's the old Adam. And that will be, uh, hopefully throughout this Lenten journey, will be crushed. Uh, Why don't you just take the whole game yourself today, buddy? You don't want the pressure, yeah. But down six, two and a half minutes left, came back, went to overtime. We won. Uh, so we play today for the championship at 4.45 out in Elgin. So if you've got nothing going on on a Sunday afternoon, which I know all of you folks don't, uh, come out to Elgin. It'd be great fun. Anyways, any questions? Man, Jeff, you missed all my jokes. You've heard them before. <laughs> That's right. That's why we offer four a weekend. <laughs> That's right. Okay, from last week, any...
What happened? She fell? <laughs> well, thank you very much. My wife got stuck in the puddle. Where is she? Is she here? She's probably drying off. That's good. I'm going to hear about that when I get home. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you. And from last week, any questions? Any comments? Chocolat was on TV last night. FX, 8 o'clock. Anyone see it? Any of you rent it? It was out because everyone in this Bible study tried to rent it. Maryland had it for too long, but now Blockbuster doesn't charge you overdue fees, so that's why you weren't able to get it, I'm sure. Okay, well, uh, everyone have a handout? Do you have one, big boy? Where's Burkholtz? Here he comes. All right, well, you know where we've been, um, and we, we, you know, we spent two weeks on kind of the, the distinction between beauty on you and beauty in you, okay? So now we'd like to push it a bit further. You remember two weeks ago when we first started, we said the goal in all of this is to expose Jesus for all that he's worth, okay? And that starts with forgiveness. It starts with Jesus on you, but it's much bigger than that. It's also Jesus inside of you who then moves you, who energizes you, to use an Eastern term, to live a different life. He transforms you by taking up residence inside of you. So that's what we want to get after today, is exactly how does that life look, or where does that life begin? So we know from two weeks ago, beauty is not merely something that is on you. This is point one. Favor was the language, forensic. You remember um, gladiator, thumbs up or thumbs down. It's not merely something that is on you, but it's also something that is inside of you. It is a gift. It takes up residence in your flesh. It actually renews who you are. Okay? You are a different person than you were before you were baptized. And frankly, you're a different person before you, uh, than you were before you came to church today. It doesn't mean you're not, you know, it doesn't mean who you are deep down hasn't changed, or has changed, it hasn't. But you're different because first you weren't forgiven and now you're forgiven. And one more time, if you've been here, Jesus has taken up residence in your flesh. Now again, you know, you've heard some comments as people were walking in today. Uh, and you know that that can quickly fade. So it's good to come to the supper again, right? <laughs> and especially when you talk to a pastor like that. You might need to come two or three times. I don't know. That's a joke. Private confession, that's right. But this idea of Jesus inside of you was really not a new thing at all. Okay, So just quickly, looking at what we looked at two weeks ago. Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And you remember it goes on to say, and the two became one flesh. So it's no longer Adam and Eve. It's now Adam and Eve as couple who are one person. There's a mystical union there. Adam is inside of Eve, and Eve is inside of Adam, in the world, and when the world sees them, they should see one person. Okay? And then St. Paul carries the marriage analogy even further and says, just in case you don't get what marriage is all about, this mystery, sacrament in the Latin, is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So all this marriage talk is really talk about Jesus and his relationship with his bride, the church, who is comprised of all Christians at all times and in all places. So it's not just you. It's much bigger than that, which is why we can pray at the altar 
not now, because it's, it's the TLH setting, but we could pray in the old setting, gather us together from the ends of the earth, uh, gather the faithful together from the ends of the earth, that we may come together and celebrate the marriage feast of the Lamb and his kingdom, which has no end. So even your Roman Catholic friends who are at Mass today, you're part of the body of Christ with them. So it's bigger than you, bigger than St. John, it's bigger than the Missouri Synod, and it's bigger than Lutheranism. It's the one holy Catholic, small c, and apostolic church, which is really why Catholic is the right title. It's all people, at all times, and in all places. And then the church carries out this mystical union talk at, at her weddings. Holy matrimony, which is an honorable estate, instituted by God, signifying unto us, here it is, the mystical union that is betwixt Christ and his church which holy estate Christ adorned and beautified with his first presence first with his presence and first miracle that he wrought in Cana of Galilee so Jesus always gets the first word that was the brilliant thing about the sermon today if you've heard it you know pastor Bruzic asked the question you know if you're lonely or if you're unloved satan certainly has an answer for you And he wants to be the guy. But that wouldn't be allowing Jesus the first word. The great thing about the temptations is the Father, or Jesus himself, frankly, always gets the first word. Satan wants to have the first word, but Jesus says, no, I am the first word. So if you're lonely or if you're unloved, uh, it's all all fulfilled by the person of Christ first and foremost, which is what the Church on Mystical Union says. All of this is first begun by Jesus. If the first words out of your mouth are not Jesus says, then you've got it all wrong. And this is, you know, this is fascinating. I'm teaching this class at River Forest on apologetics. And it's so interesting to hear students who are, they're very bright students, but every sentence begins with, well, I think. And finally, about two weeks in, I said, you know, the big problem with, with Christians and Lutherans is it's always about what you think. So every sentence now, begins with, what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say? What do you love? Not what do you hate. Everyone knows stuff they hate, but what is it actually that you love? What does Jesus say? And when you can begin to transform your, or when you see your life transformed in such a way that your sentences begin with, well, Jesus says, or Jesus does, then you know that he's taken up residence in your flesh in such a way that he energizes not only your being, but also the very words that flow out of your mouth. That's where we want to get. That's where we want to get. You know, I I have no patience for people who say, here's what I don't like about other churches. I don't care. I really don't care what you don't like. What I care about is what you like about this church, and that you begin your sentence with, I like it because Jesus says this. That's the way the church works. And then the Holy Supper, where it all comes together. This is why the Holy Supper is called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. It is a marriage banquet. Jesus is your bridegroom, and you are his bride. And there, you see, he makes us partakers of his divine nature. You get all of Jesus. You actually consume the flesh of God himself at the Holy Supper. If it's merely flesh and blood, you have no forgiveness. But if it's the flesh and blood of God himself joined to his soul and his divinity, who God is, you actually, I mean, just think about this. And I wonder, and I don't want to show of hands, but I wonder how many of you actually think about this on a regular basis. When you come to the supper, it's not just bread and wine, and it's not just flesh and blood, but it is the body 
the blood, the soul, and the divinity of Jesus Christ himself. I mean, you consume God at the altar. And that can't help but change who you are. God is put inside of you. If it's just flesh and blood, you're just a mere cannibal. And that was the, that was the, bang, on, you know, that was the bang on the Christian church for years, those who were sacramental. You're just cannibals. No, it's more than that. It's the body and blood, soul and divinity of Jesus Christ himself, and that changes who I am. It forgives my sins, but forgiveness is much bigger than just being declared not guilty. It's much bigger than that. Forgiveness encompasses, uh, as, the, as the catechism says, where there is forgiveness, there is also life and salvation. So forgiveness is the first word, but it's much, much more than that. Okay? Everyone tracking? Okay. So then, and we even have R.S. Thomas. One more. God said it was part of myself he gave me. The lamb was torn from my own side. You remember this in the Old Testament. This is Luther from his Genesis commentary. The sacrifices of the Old Testament are actually sacraments. Because Jesus, who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, is joined to that animal in such a way that it actually cleanses the sins of those who offer up the sacrifices. Okay? That's why Abel's, that's why Abel's offering is so generous. It's the Lamb that the Lord had joined himself to. And Jesus then, as the book of Hebrews says, offers up an even greater sacrifice than that of Abel. His blood, speaks a, his blood speaks a louder word. Because Jesus is the Lamb of God par excellence. But you also, and this is the key, point three, the Lord, who is beauty, now think Thomas Aquinas here, this is all the way back to week one, is not merely on you. You know, we end the service with, the Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. That means... When you look at us, please see your son and, and don't, don't charge us with all the sins we've got against us. Don't hold those against us, but please see your son and let us walk out of here not guilty. But the Lord, who is beauty, is also inside of you. So we, we hear from Luther, 1544, we are to become participants of the divine nature and be exalted so high in nobility. You are greater than kings and queens that we are not only to become loved by God through Christ and have his favor and grace as the highest and most precious shrine, but also to have him, the Lord himself, dwelling in us in his fullness. Namely, he wants to say, his love is not to be limited only to the removal of his wrath. It's not merely about taking his wrath away from you. That's not the fullness of his love. And to having his fatherly heart, which is merciful to us. But we are also to enjoy this love. Otherwise, it would be wasted love and lost love, as it is said, to love and to not not enjoy. And also to gain great benefit and riches from it. And that's when you know your life has been transformed. When you begin to find joy in things you never thought you could find joy in. And I think I may have mentioned this last week. This is... uh, you know, this is where Chocolata is such a great movie. You know, the mayor of the city hates the chocolate shop. But when he finally engages in it, when it becomes part of himself, it's more than joy. He, he's a fool. 
He's a fool. We had, a, we had this thing at, when I went to Concordia Ann Arbor, Fools for Christ, which was kind of cheesy. It was, this, it was this group of people who go around and do all these plays. They do like chancel dramas, Fool for Christ. That's not what a Fool for Christ is. You, well, <laughs> let me turn the microphone off. You may be a fool, but you're not a fool for Christ. Okay, so. <laughs> Getting back to it, though, a real fool for Christ is one who has been caught up so much in his life that you find this joy that the world can't see for themselves. That's a fool for Christ. And that's what that mayor is in the movie. He's a fool for the chocolate shop. He can't get enough. But there also may be a better way of talking, maybe a simpler way of talking. You are not only justified, which means to be forgiven, or to have Jesus on you in such a way that the Father looks at you and declares you not guilty. But you are also sanctified, which means to live forgiven, or to have Jesus in you in such a way that all you do is energized by his divine life. And that's the distinction between those two movies, The Gladiator and Chocolat. The Gladiator is completely, his favor is on him. In the other one, the chocolate is in him. So you and the Lord then, and again, just think about this. You and the Lord are actually one and the same. You and the Lord are one and the same. Just like you and your spouse are one and the same. So what goes for Jesus, or better, what defines Jesus, who he is, now also goes for you. And if you flip to the next page, page 3, you know that one of the most beautiful ways in which we've come to know him, come to know Jesus, is as love, or love incarnate, or love divine, the hymn says, love divine, love all excelling. One of the chief ways you've come to know the person of Christ is as love. It's just like he was with light. He doesn't merely have light, he is light. He doesn't merely have love or love, he is love. And that's how you've come to know him chiefly. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is the greatest expression of his love. Love, uh, you know, there's no greater love than a man who lays down his life for his friends. Love is how you've come to know him. And love also then is how you've come to know yourself when you're joined to the body of Christ. And so, you know, I, here's the thing. I, I always hesitate to quote Luther. I think it gets a bit redundant. I'm going to do it, but I think it gets a bit redundant. I also never thought Luther, and this is, this is my own ignorance, and, you know, I should probably apologize to Martin someday when I see him. I never thought he got it like this, but you read Luther more and more, and you see that Luther, this, I mean, this is not, if you say this is new for Lutheranism, it's certainly not new for Luther. Okay? We're not making this stuff up. This whole beauty bit, we're not making this stuff up. This is the richness of who we are as Christians and as Lutherans. So then Luther on love, this is beautiful. Once again, the example of love is prefigured here in Christ with the leper. You remember this account in the Gospels. For here you see how love makes him a servant, so that he helps the poor man freely and for nothing, seeks neither pleasure, favor, nor honor thereby, but only the good of the poor man and the honor of God the Father. That is why he loves him, not because he wants to be somebody, but because he's humble. 
He's a servant. That is what he does. For which he also forbids him to tell anyone, so that it be absolutely pure work of free, kindly love. That is how, as I have often said, as I have said often enough, faith makes us lords. Through faith, we even become gods and partake of the divine nature and name. As Psalm 81 says, I have said, you are gods and children altogether of the highest of the high. Faith makes you everything. You are, as the church fathers always said, like God. The word became flesh that flesh might become word. Or God became man that you might become like God. That's what faith does. That's what trusting in Christ and his merits does. But there's another part of the deal, love. But through love, we become like the poorest of the poor. According to faith, we need nothing and yet have complete abundance. Through faith, we receive goods from above from God. But through love, we release them from below to our neighbor. Just as Christ, according to his deity, needed nothing. He is God. He doesn't need anything. But in his humanity, served everyone who needed him. I won't go as far as to say that you have two natures in you, because that's not true. But there is a very real sense in which you are completely human and yet completely joined to that which is divine. Through faith, you have everything. And yet, in your body, in the flesh, in this place, and in the world, you express the gift that's been given to you through actions of love, through love itself. You and Christ have parallel characteristics. In other words, you were created and redeemed to lead the same life, the exact same life as your creator and your redeemer. And his relationship is defined by love. Which is why all throughout the Gospels, this is point seven, love then is the key to every relationship. Just think about this when you go home today, how love is the key to everything. With God and neighbor, first and foremost, you remember the scriptures say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. What, is def- what defines your relationship between God and neighbor? It is love. And also with your fellow Christians. This, command- this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. But it also defines your relationship with your enemies or even those who are outside of the faith. This is from the Sermon on the Mount, which, by the way, is pure gospel, in case you didn't know. Matthew 5, but I say to you, love your enemies. So what is it that defines every relationship? First and foremost, Jesus' relationship with you, and now because of Jesus, your relationship with the Father, your neighbor, fellow Christians, even your enemies, even those who are outside the church, what is it? It is love itself. That is what defines us. And to be quite honest, you know, all of that should come as great joy, especially, especially at this time in our life together. And I think this may be point eight. But it should come as great joy, especially at this time in our life together. You remember what most, people, what most people are afraid of, or the way that most people get bollocked up, or the struggles that most people have, 
can really be boiled down to the fact that they feel lonely and unloved. And you've heard this over and over. I said it, in fact, I said it to these college kids, and they'd never thought about it like that. But even think about your own life. I'm not, I'm not just talking pagans. I'm just not talking non-Christians here. I'm talking about you, too. Most of your problems, I would even go as far as to say, well, all of them. I'll get an email to say my problem doesn't fall within that. Most of your problems can be boiled down to the fact that you feel lonely and unloved. Even if you have a happy marriage and a happy family and feel deeply loved, there's some part of your life where you may be a bit lonely or maybe a bit unloved. Maybe it's a death. Maybe it is your marriage. Who knows what it is? But everyone's problems, I'm really becoming convinced of, can be boiled down to these two things. So what most people want, then, is community and love. And this is straight, I'm not, you know, I didn't make this stuff either. This is right out of N.T. Wright, the Bishop of Durham, who, by the way, may be in Wheaton this coming May. In fact, if we can work it out, he may even be speaking at St. John. But he's a phenomenal theologian, and one of his great attributes is that he can write for people who aren't theologians. This book, Simply Christian, that he just put out is, is supposed to be the next mere Christianity. You know, C.S. Lewis, mere Christianity. And he lays out in his first chapter what he calls echoes of a voice. Things that all people of all times, but specifically this time, this postmodern culture, things that all people of this time desperately desire and how those are really echoes of a voice and the voice is, of course, the voice of Jesus. But he says people most want four things, community, love, beauty, and justice. Everyone wants their wrongs to be made right, justice. I mean, there's not a time in your life when you haven't wanted, when someone wrongs you, you want it made right. If someone steals your money, you want to go to court. If someone sins against you, you want an apology. Everyone wants beauty, which is part of the reason why we're doing this. Beauty is a picture of the divine. It gives you access into the windows of heaven. It's like an icon. And everyone wants community. Everyone wants to have friends. If you're a loner, as N.T. Wright says, you're almost considered abnormal. It doesn't mean you don't want to get away. I'd want nothing more right now than to be on the, you know, the Amalfi Coast with no one but my wife and my daughter for about three weeks in the sun. That'd be great. But eventually, I'd want to come back. Because if you want to be alone forever, that's, almost, that's against who we are. That's why in the garden, the Lord says, it's not good that man should be alone. That's why the Lord himself walks and talks with Adam and Eve. They need community. And everyone wants to be loved. And especially then in the church, or those who are just outside the church, most of their problems can be boiled down to the fact that they're either lonely or they're unloved. And you remember that all it means to give a witness or to be Christian, your only task in all of this, is to see people and to size up the person. Who are they? What are their problems? Where are they coming from? What have they dealt with? And then to give them the Jesus, not that they want necessarily, although sometimes that is what they want, but to give them the Jesus that they need. If you're lonely, you need a Jesus who comes as community. If you're unloved, you need a Jesus who comes as love. 
And I would bet that most people in this world and in this culture that's very postmodern feel extraordinarily unloved. And the reason this comes as great joy at this time in our life together is I'm sure some of you, most of you, including myself, you think about a big building across the street and you think, you know, there are, you know, 150 on a Saturday night sometimes. That's going to look pretty empty over there. (laughs) And there are a lot of people in the world who are hurting, and there are a lot of people who are not inside churches, even in Wheaton on Sunday morning. We need to get after those folks. The reason this should come as great joy is love is the ticket. Love is the answer. That's how you get after these folks. That's how, frankly, the church grows and flourishes. Because love is Jesus, and love is precisely what people need. So you see there, point eight, A, page four, why do we love not only to try to be the kind of church that Jesus would have us be, which always gets the first word, that's what we're after, but also there's great joy in this, because this is what is needed to reach out and offer a witness to this postmodern world. Love is what is needed to reach out and say, come be part of this community. Or we have something for you here. Or I know you're lonely and unloved, but there's a place for you, there is love for you, and guess what? You're not going to be lonely anymore, and you're going to be extraordinarily lovable. Love is the ticket. Because love is Jesus. And so what we must do then is love. We must love, and we can only do that, as you see there, by being physically, concretely, and tangibly joined to love itself, the person of Christ. Not merely on you, but inside of you. So that it's no longer you who love, but Jesus who loves through you. And then in loving the unloved, now I realize I use love here a lot, so just, just let, we'll read this a couple times, just think it all the way through. And in loving then the unloved, we can make community. You remember how often the scriptures call the the body of Christ beloved. Why are they beloved? Because they're loved, and in that love, they're molded and shaped into a community who is then called beloved. In loving the unloved, we can actually make community, and the church then will grow and flourish. And this is the natural progression then. There are many people in this world who feel lonely and unloved. And if you feel unloved, you probably feel unlovable, right? No one could ever love me. The first thing that needs to happen is we actually need to love them. And in loving them, they will no longer feel unlovable, but they will actually feel lovable. And when you feel lovable... The idea of community is almost irresistible. It's almost irresistible. Because the reason you come here on Sundays, hopefully, is because you feel community and loved. If you feel unloved, if you're on the outside of these walls and you say, no one loves me, the first word is to say, I love you. Guess what? You are lovable because of Jesus. And guess what? There's a community where you can hang out with all your loved ones. This is not hard. You want the church to grow? Love people. Just love people. And I'm not trying to be trite, like, 
Oh, it's so easy. Just walk out and love, I love you. Isn't this great? Loving people is dis- different than merely saying, I love you. One of the greatest witnesses for the Christian faith is actually done without words. And again, I think it's, is it St. Francis of Assisi who says over and over again, uh, you know, sh- share the gospel and if necessary, use words. Now that's, a, that's all over places now. It's like the Ten Commandments in a courtroom. It's overdone. But actually the point is a good one. I tell these college kids, if you want an apologetic, don't, your first word out of your mouth can't be the resurrection of Jesus was a valid event and it happened in this to- at this time. These witnesses saw it and here are all the historical documents that support it. That may have worked at the age of modernism, but it doesn't work anymore. We give an apologetic. We give a witness for the faith. We bring people into communion by being Christian. And one of the chief ways in which you're Christian is to love. So what you need to figure out in your own life is what does that mean? I told the eighth graders, you don't sit down next to someone on the side of the road and say, do you know Jesus? No, I don't know Jesus. You should know Jesus. Okay, I should know Jesus. Okay, come to church with me. That may happen, but it's very rare. But you need to, as, as the scriptures say, as Jesus says, let your light so shine before men that they see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. It's just being normal. It's being a Christian. It's loving the unlovable. And in loving the unlovable, they not only feel loved, but they also feel lovable, and that creates an environment where community is nearly irresistible. You can't help but want to be among those who love you. I mean, I would never go home to see my parents. I, would not, I can't imagine going home to them if I knew they hated me. Why would you drive five hours to sit at a table with people who you thought hated you? Maybe out of duty, but that's not going to happen in the church. The only way people are going to walk through the door, the only way they're going to fill that place is if they feel like this is a place where people are loved. Any questions so far? Thoughts? Come on, be brave. (laughs) Go ahead. That's right. That's right. Yeah, the comment is, and it's very good, that even in, the, even in the Old Testament for today, you already see the love of the Father by something as simple as making Adam and Eve clothes. Because that's, that's, you know, that's when you know sin has arrived, is when the scriptures say they were naked and they were ashamed. You're not supposed to be ashamed of anything. And in heaven, you'll never be ashamed. But shame is the great result of sin, and the Lord says, I've got an answer for that too. And, he, and in something as simple as taking the skin of an animal, uh, you know, he covers them. He covers them, which is actually, it's actually a picture of what the Lord does to all of us. He takes the skin of the lamb and drops it over you and says, don't be ashamed, you wear my son. But that is, that is love. Okay, that is love. He doesn't say anything. Uh, he just gives them clothing and says, here you are, you're still my children, you're always going to be loved. Yeah? 
Yeah. Yeah, the, the comment is, uh, you know, like with the Amish, one of the great punishments is to be shunned from community. And, and in fact, uh, we're not Amish, of course, but, you know, one of the great, and it's, it's not, it's never meant to be punishment, but one of the great ways in which we try to bring people back to the church, and sadly, and, you know, I don't, sadly, it's not used very often, but that was the whole purpose of excommunicating someone was not to shun them from community and say you can never come back, but to say, here's how community looks, and you don't want to live that way anymore. But what we desperately want is to have you back. That's why the excommunication was horrible. But you know what the greatest gospel ever was? In fact, we should just read it sometime just to look at it, was the reception of those who had been excommunicated, to receive them back into communion. It was like the Lord putting skin on Adam and Eve. Yeah, we know you screwed up, and it's all okay, and isn't this great? Come back to the supper. I mean, that's the, when people have not been to church for ages, and then all of a sudden something clicks, and they say, whoa, I should probably be at the supper, and they come back. That's, that's the greatest joy in the church, because it's all about community, and community is always defined by love. If you don't love, you can't be called a Christian. It's that simple, because Jesus is love. Yeah. That's right. But that's the whole point of a Christian. A Christian drives that 500 miles even if they aren't loved mm-hmm. because they want to show that love to them and through that love is continually going back, mm-hmm. then they are the Holy Spirit works in them. So I, that, the I had an old Adam moment. Okay. It was an old Adam moment. <laughs> uh, you're right. If I was a good Christian, I'd go anyways, even if my family hated me. But the old Adam, he's a... It, he's a good swimmer, man. See, that's why this thing right here is so... I mean, this is, this is what it's all about. He's right here, and he's floating back up to the top, and it's all okay. But you're right. If I was really a Christian, I'd go, and I'd say, they're unlovable, and they don't love me, but I'm still going to go and love them. That's right, yeah. That's right. I mean, this is why the temptations are so good. The temptations are all about not merely... Satan wants Jesus to accept what is good and not what is best. And that's, that's our... I mean, that's just who we are. Yeah, it would be good not to go to people who hate you. It's best to go. Well, we're not, we're not completely sanctified. Sanctification is a process, but we are all going through moments of sanctifying until we're heaven. You're closer than you appear. You're closer than what you think. On that note, we should probably end, because I'm sure you've got another question. It's 11 o'clock. We can ask it next week. Come back, okay? You're exactly right. It keeps, that's why I said two weeks ago, this isn't going to be all good till you die. And then it's all good. But there's more of it there than maybe you think. Let's close in the Lord's Prayer, and we'll come back next week, okay? Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, we'll see you. Take care.